This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Welcome along to another edition of the Offscript podcast. Well, we're going back 20 years or so in this episode to chart the rise of a man who would later become possibly the biggest musical star on the planet. The Offscript podcast. I've been in conversation with a man who began his journalistic career on Rolling Stone magazine, where he became a senior writer, Anthony Bozza, New York-based, and he's been the author of best-selling books on Eminem and ACDC, uh, approved books, I should say, not autobiographies, but biographies that were approved by the artists themselves. Whatever You Say I Am, The Life and Times of Eminem, that came out in 2004. Why ACDC Matters, Not Afraid, a second book, The Evolution of Eminem, which was published in 2019. And he's also co-authored quite a few numerous sort of autobiographies of artists, including Slash, In Excess and Tommy Lee. We'll actually hear from him on a different subject in a later edition of the show on how he spent six months living in Malibu with Tommy Lee. (laughs) Well, I did. During that conversation, I thought, I can't air any of this, really. (laughs) But uh, we'll try and cut that one up. But today we're looking at um, a specific moment in time. Uh, We're going back 25 years to a period where a young Marshall Mathers was about to burst onto the scene and take the world by storm with the release of... It's actually his second studio album, but it's the first one having signed with Dr. Dre and yeah. Scope Records. It's the, uh, the Slim Shady LP. And um, it coincided with Anthony's career as an intern, which was back in 1995 at Rolling Stone, where he was fact-checking, he was researching for other writers before they hired him full-time in the music department. His big break came after a friend turned him on to an unsigned white rapper from Detroit named Eminem who in 1999 would release this record I still remember that playing on MTV yeah. on sure loop yeah. It was in 1999. That was the first year I was at university. And it was just, it was ubiquitous. It was, it was. everywhere. And it was so different. It was so different. From everything else you'd heard before. Mm. And the, the album itself, the, the real Slim Shady, the Slim Shady LP, I should say, was just so shocking yeah. and, and so visceral. And the lyrics were so outrageous. Yeah. We're going to get onto all of that. But uh, that single blew up and um, the Slim Shady LP quickly followed it. Um, that would propel Eminem, Marshall Mathers, to superstardom. But two years prior to that he was an unheralded rapper on the cusp of his big breakthrough and that's when Anthony met him in this first little clip he recalls how he first learned about a rapper from Detroit named Marshall Mathers I had a buddy who was a big hip-hop obsessive lived in LA and recorded him freestyling on the wake-up show where Sway the DJ would have like unsigned people in and just let them freestyle and he was just sounded like nobody else he had that you know, I mean, early Slim Shady, everyone knows it. I don't have to really like describe it, but uh, it was just, it, you know, you heard his voice. His voice is amazing. His rapping was incredible. And I was just like, who is this guy? So I came, became pretty obsessed with him. And this was in like 97. And I remember, you know, again, being sort of young, really eager, green, when it going into my music editor's office and saying like, this guy is amazing. Have you heard this guy? We have to do something. And he kind of was, you know, he said like, oh, young gun, you know, settle down. He's like, we don't really do unsigned artists and we don't do a ton of hip hop. 
anyway, which this was 97. Then that happens, you know, and I was like, all right, I think he's I think he's amazing. If you ever do anything, please don't forget me. And thankfully he didn't, you know, it could have been very easy for him to just give that to somebody else. So initially when Eminem was signed by Dre and had released My Name Is, Anthony was assigned to write a 300-word article on the song, which had become a sensation on MTV. Uh, it, it was a pre-release. Back in the day when CDs would get sent out, the album wasn't out yet. A single, in this yeah. case, My Name Is, would be sent out. And journalists would be the only ones who had it. Um, there was such a buzz around the song that Rolling Stone decided to upgrade the piece to a cover story. And so Anthony was thrust into a whistle-stop tour of New York and Detroit in the company of Eminem and his entourage before the album had been released. And he explained that, you know, essentially people, people who are fans of music, the only way they would figure out whether they would like a record or not was to find out what their favourite writer, um, it didn't have to be Rolling Stone magazine, whatever your, your sort of source of information, you, you don't get that now. He did yeah. say to me, those days are long gone. But back then, journalists had real sway. And Rolling Stone magazine itself was the biggest platform in the US for musicians to sort of show the world who they were. Very different time. Artists were less accustomed to sort of having a camera pointed at them. They were generally more accessible. They were less cagey. And Eminem's manager, Paul Rosenberg, was a former attorney who was completely unprepared for the level of global attention that his client was about to generate. So before Eminem took off, Anthony was welcomed into his inner sanctum. There was a small window in there, and I, I was lucky enough to be there and, and earned his trust and got through it. But, um, you know, we went out to Detroit and... He, um, the trailer that he and Kim were living in had an eviction notice on the door. He still hadn't gotten any of his money from his sign, his deal from signing. And, you know, was just like behind on bills. We were out when he was in New York. One of the gigs that he was playing was like a sweet 16 in Staten Island for, um, this pretty, pretty convinced it was a mobbed up daughter, mobbed up family who owned a, a, uh, a movie theater and that they had converted it for the night into like a performance space for these, for these teenagers. And they were, they was like, they were going nuts. I mean, but uh, yeah, one was a big hip hop night and then one was like an after hours, kind of every kind of person. And we, it was like in the VIP, he just did three songs. And then, then the first one was the Sweet 16 in Staten Island where there were so many kids from their school that like we had to, they had to have police kind of blocking the way for us to get to the car and get out of there. It was nuts. The idea that Eminem would perform a Sweet 16 <laughs> is just crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and if Eminem was a little naive before he shot to stardom, quickly he became very cynical, very wary of the media. And Anthony has a theory on why that was. Yeah, I think, you know, when he first started out, he really didn't give an as he's fond of saying and uh did kind of didn't care about it had nothing to lose and was just being true to himself and then i think realized how that could you know bite him in um all of the the cartoonish violence in his songs being taken seriously courting controversy as he did and then controversy came you know that's like don't you know it's when you get what you wish for yeah I think all of that a lot of pressure um it wasn't just a laugh anymore and people were using him for all kinds of stuff you know he, he he just stopped wanting to talk to people i was you know we had a bond we had a thing and um you know he wouldn't talk to anyone else at rolling stone like a couple of times they tried to arrange interviews um actually <laughs> arranged one with a, a writer that has the same first name as i did and he thought it was me and once he realized it wasn't he hung up he started to not trust anybody 
Um, but I was always, you know, I was always on his side. I was actually deposed for several of his lawsuits that, that quoted things that were said in my article, you know, get the lawsuit with his mother. I was like a defense person for that. So I was pretty in there. Did he ever um, comment on your articles, Anthony? Yeah, the article he liked, you know, I had to, I wanted to really get into it. And he, I was the only journalist that he told his mother to talk to. I was like the only one that got all the, I mean, people got those interviews, but they weren't condoned you know there's like the tabloids and stuff paid her money for interviews but um i was the only one that that he said to talk to uh kim didn't want to i did meet Haley, <laughs> uh, but she was a baby at the time so so yeah i will uh, you know i guess i that's a very cool thing that i'm very proud of and Eminem at the time, the lines between his actual life and what he was rapping about because of all his family members that he was talking about in yeah. his songs, the lines were so blurred, no one really knew what the truth was. And uh, just prior to the release of the Slim Shady LP, Anthony got this FaceTime, this access to Eminem that was ultimately he was the only journalist to get it. I will ask you this question. Were you a fan of the Slim Shady LP, Sonar Rapani? Yeah, of course. I mean, we're, I think everybody of our generation it was was so novel it was so provocative like it was something that everybody seemed to get behind Chris exactly that I would have been what it was released 99 so I think I was 13 at the time but I remember it it made such a splash because as you've already alluded to it was so different everyone at school was talking about it I would have been what I've been first second year at high school I think it was and yeah when that was released I still remember it it was it was big news because he was controversial and he was saying things that perhaps I haven't heard before. Yeah, as I mentioned, it's gone on to sell over 10 million copies. I asked Anthony why he thought it struck such a chord with its audience. We look at culture in broad strokes. Uh, things generally swing from... In music, There's there's been this, this trend. I think it's actually kind of over now in a way. But there's been... There's usually... there At that time, there was a trend from more aggressive and um, sometimes like, you know, more depressive, uh, edgy music would be followed by a swing back to the mainstream and safe you know so it was like after all of the grunge stuff and the really kind of aggressive hip-hop of of like tupac and the death row years and all that stuff you know with all those murders that happened like you know kurt cobain's dead um lane staley from uh, allison chains you know tupac and biggie are dead after that we have this period of like in rock and roll it became things like matchbox 20 you know, and like yeah. three doors down, it was like very bland, very safe, kind of like Pearl Jam inspired, you know, because Pearl Jam's great, but they were never edgy, you know, like all these, this kind of like very smoothed out kind of thing. And this was also the time when hip hop became, you know, more like the Puff Daddy years, where it's like much easier to stomach for, you know, kids in the suburbs. And it's not, it's not scary. It's not NWA. It's not like racially tinged, like public enemy. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not Onyx going to come like destroy you and Wu Tang, you know, and stuff like that. So it got a bit safer. And also, that was the rise of the the sort of like packaged pop era. You know, the Insinks, the Backstreet Boys, the Britney Spears. All that stuff happened afterwards. So, 19, you know, the 1999, you got like it kind of goes back again. You have things like corn and Limp Biscuit and all this politically incorrect stuff rebelling against like the total request live era of, of really um, just safe middle ground top 40 stuff. So I think it was timing for that as well. And, you know, the, the sort of 
the sort of mainstreamization of hip hop, which is the bling era that you're talking about, safer topics, hits for the club, you know, um, all of those Puff Daddy things, you know, and the, it's not just Puff Daddy, but that's just an easy one to to, to point to. Mm. All those things are, are kind of easy to digest using party samples, you know, like disco samples and old funk stuff. Um, it's sort of the hip hop's audience grew to, to like the white kids in the, in the suburbs. It, was, it, was, it wasn't seen as edgy. And then here's Eminem, who's a white kid doing it and doing it really well. So, I mean, it's just, it's just like the perfect storm. When you sort of place it in that historical yeah. context, it all makes so much sense. You think it would, you think it's just happenstance, but actually the timing of it was everything. Yeah. And that historical context as well is so relatable. When he's talking about how everything had become quite mild, you're talking about the Puff yeah. Daddy type of hip hop. Yeah. It was time for something to just blow everything out yeah. of the water. Shake we all up. love Mo Money, Mo Problems, but yeah. um, that <laughs> yeah, was representative <laughs> of that particular era. Um, and I'd actually read just prior to speaking to Anthony that the reception to Eminem himself from the hip hop community, lukewarm at best, mm. openly hostile at worst. And I asked Anthony why that was. There used to be a giant racial component to hip hop. It was like not the voice of white people. It was minorities and you know um, it, that's what it was and it was like a voice of rebellion for them. So white people appropriating it usually went terribly wrong. Um, you know third base was great. The Beastie Boys were great but there was a Vanilla Ice was literally awful and set everyone and Marky Mark set everyone back. So that used to really matter. You know, nobody is looking at Jack Harlow and caring about that anymore or Post Malone when he does rap or whatever. doesn't seem to matter. No one seems to care. Um, it didn't always used to be that way. So Eminem was pretty much rejected by every hip hop label like over and over. Um, and and in Detroit as well, he was just kind of this oddball. And the only reason why he succeeded is because he's so good. If you know, if he were if he were just average, we wouldn't be talking about him. Yeah. So that was kind of that's really what it comes down to. It's just pure skill. It's pretty rare to see a talent so overwhelmingly precocious that it just it kind of counteracts or, or sort of negates all the sort of forces, the negative forces working against it. Yeah, and I remember watching a video, was it or an interview of sorts about how much Adre had to go out on a limb. He was ostracized within his own community yeah, for taking a chance on Eminem. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Again, he just knew how how gifted Eminem was, and the songs themselves. I mean, you've got the, the, the sort of singles, if you like, but some of the other songs. I mean, the stuff he talks about is so outrageous. It's cartoonish. It's sort of. I said to Anthony, it's kind of provocation, almost for provocation's sake. But there are also some sort of sharp social observations in his writing. So, how much of his music was purely satirical? How much of it was an authentic social commentary? A lot of people didn't realize that he he was kind of coming from this this subgenre of the kind of hip hop that he did. That's that's basically like horrorcore, and it's like ridiculous cartoonish murder raps. Um, it was kind of big in Detroit, and it was an underground kind of scene, and. It, that's kind of where he came from and that's what you know the slim shady persona was like his his murderous you know um his murderous alter ego and so to begin with like you know coming from that plus being a battle rapper which is like you know your job is to take down the opponent uh that that's kind of where he was coming from um you know not to mention channeling all of his anger 
at, at being, you know, kind of at a dead end in his life. That, like that was like sort of all of his fuel for what he was doing. I think he just applied that stuff to a more mainstream target. You know, he knew he was sort of an edgy character and he applied it to the mainstream, to everyone who was succeeding, like the Britney Spears and all that kind of stuff. So there was always in what he did uh, a sense of, of saying something shocking for the sake of shocking, because that's how you would win a battle rap. You know, you, you out insult the guy in front of you um, to get the biggest reaction from the crowd. Yeah. So it's. You know, it's like blood sport, essentially, <laughs> or like wrestling. You know, somebody wants to see someone do something outrageous and throw a chair at the guy or whatever, you know. And I still remember that scene in 8 Mile, the film uh, that came out a couple of years later. The final scene where he where he just he wins the, he wins the, the kind the of rounds battle. through the rap battle. That epic scene Jeez. in that particular film. Could watch that limitless times um but i did ask him uh, it was probably a bit of a silly question this because it, again everything is of their time but how would something as sort of overtly shocking as that be received now in our much more culturally sensitive era that we're living in today and anthony had an interesting response to that well i have to say as a music fan i would love to see some artists try to be that now in some way i just because it would shake things up and i think when things get shaken up good things come of it usually or something something uh evolutionary comes from it and i think things have gotten a bit like very boring but uh that being said um he would geez it's just really hard to say if somebody you know it was so of a time just because of like a lot of his targets aside from you know the autobiographical stuff about the bullies and how everything was true to life I don't know I think there are so many people who would try to cancel him I mean I've read there was you know when I was writing my second book on him a few years ago um there was a whole bunch of sort of millennial digital journalists who were saying that it's time to never listen to those records again and all that kind of stuff like taking it out of the historical context which i think is dangerous personally i think that you know we should all be intelligent enough to see things in context and see things for what they are um of when the time period and all that kind of stuff but i think that if it was an album directly like that he would have a lot more explaining to do than he did at the time right you know, his whole attitude at the time was like he would he was being a class clown in interviews whenever you'd see him he was silly he was not taking it seriously he was, he was usually very funny on camera and he would like go into a persona and do that kind of stuff i don't know how that would be accepted i think that if someone did you know tell their life story which is essentially what he was doing you know like the story of the bully and and the stuff about you know the stuff about kim and wanting to like kill her and all that that would be a really tough sell <laughs> and and i think that in this day and age if someone went there it it should be you know these are different times but i think that if someone if a new artist was going to be that extreme um in the telling of their life story and having a character that extreme I think that they would just really need to be a lot more self-aware and ready to explain themselves right. in multiple media outlets uh, and not do what M did, which was like, I don't give a any of that or any of you or, you know, this is this is an act. But he was very, very blasé and flippant. I, I don't think that would go over so well. 
But again, you know, it, it it's hard to know how something as provocative as that would be received now. And, and maybe these albums, are, maybe we just don't know about them, but there's certainly no mainstream artist who's coming out with content like that now. I can't see it going down only for the fact that even if somebody did secretly enjoy it and secretly enjoyed how sort of interesting it was yeah. and could take it with a pinch of salt, you couldn't outwardly admit even that you enjoyed it because... It's so against the tide of the current sentiment. Yes. And you're not allowed anymore to be against the tide of current sentiment. It's crazy. It is. It really is. That album was released in 1999, 23 years ago, Slim Shady LP. And his subsequent semi-autobiographical film, which we mentioned earlier, Eight Mile, came out in 2002. So three years. It was a meteoric rise. And mainstream society's attitudes towards him did a complete 180. He was accepted into and ultimately vaunted by the culture that initially reviled him. And arguably, there was no bigger star in the world in music than Eminem in 2002. He'd certainly be one of them. He'd be in the top 10 for sure. Did he resent that, given that being an outsider is such an integral part of his story, I asked Anthony? Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing him at the first Grammys. Uh, he was nominated for, you know, that was 99 or 2000. I forget. Yeah, it was 99, 2000. And like I saw him sort of by like a, a table of food and he was like, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, it's just like he was like grabbing some shrimp and was like dying to get out of there. I think that's the real guy. I think that's who he is. I, I don't think that's changed. He's a very private person. I think that what he did was just kind of code himself with layer with de- more layers of defense, um, which to him is, you know, be combative, be off-putting so that people leave you alone i think that's his mo you know so i i do understand what you're saying i think that he probably did with the increased attention that certainly hasn't you know never really let up he withdrew i mean he certainly withdrew into drugs and um withdrew into you know privacy and uh i think just it, it really cemented his outer persona which is one of the battle rapper you know he's always when you see him in public doesn't he always look like suspicious yeah <laughs> it's like massively. he's like looking for he's like looking for an active shooter in the crowd or like you know yeah. and i feel like that's kind of the mentality when he's not in a place where he's totally comfortable and, and private i feel like he's pretty low profile these mm. days never really yeah he pops up on the odd podcast but yeah, I feel like his last couple albums really flopped. That's yeah. what, you know, yeah. it's not as relevant Still as well. talking about the same issues that he had back then. It's like, come on, Eminem. Yeah, you've got to evolve. Otherwise, yeah. he's not really keeping with the times, is he? No, he isn't. Now, Anthony's most recent book, which was released in November of last year, is about another rapper. It's with co-authored with another rapper, Raekwon. It's called From Staircase to Stage, The Story of Raekwon and the Wu-Tang Clan. It's garnered great reviews. It's got 4.9 out of 5 on Amazon. And he's also got a podcast... This is a great concept. It's called Winal. And each episode, Anthony has a guest on. Past guests include Tommy Lee, Mick Fleetwood, Legends in Music. And they talk through a record that has changed their lives. And that is paired with the two of them enjoying a carefully selected (laughs) grape. So it sounds like a lot of fun. A massive thank you to Anthony. The Off Script Podcast. So that brings to an end part one of our conversation with the celebrated music journalist and author Anthony Bozer. But there is more to come because as well as discussing his incredible and up-close personal relationship with Eminem, he has also worked with a litany of other huge names from the music industry. And I did want to pick his brains on a few of those. So a few days later, Rog and I were in studio and we were able to revisit the conversation. And here it is. 
The Offscript Podcast. Now, a lot of what Anthony told me is simply not fit for air. <laughs> 80% of it, in fact. But I'll just sum that up by saying he had a lovely time Great. in those six months. And uh, Tommy Lee, of course, has had a pretty colourful life, it's yeah. fair to say, as the founding member and drummer of the band Motley Crue, who, just to give you a reminder of what they sound like... You a Motley Crue fan, Rog? Um, I, I would I would pogo around if they came on in a rock club, but I wouldn't go and seek out the music. Do you know what I mean? I don't, it's not that I dislike the music, it's just not really on my radar. Okay. Yeah, it's of the ACDC yeah, ilk, exactly. isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a time and a place for them. Yeah. Um, what was Tommy Lee like? I guess that was the sort of jumping yeah. off point for this particular uh, part of the interview with Anthony. It's, it's a simple question that leads to a great little anecdote. Take a listen. He's fantastic. He and I get along really well. He's he's sweet and goofy and um, really like just really nice, like wants to make sure everyone, you know, if you're in his orbit, if you're like in, he wants to make sure that everyone's happy and as a big people pleaser, a big like performative, hilarious dude. Um, and, you know, then he wasn't in Motley Crue. He didn't know what he was doing musically. And so he got really into the book. I mean, we and the book, he let me do whatever the hell I wanted. So I basically wanted to deconstruct this, this sort of serious, um, the autobiography. And, you know, I ended up being a narrator in the footnotes. Like Tommy was so funny because he would just forget like massive details of his life. <laughs> so I would just report them from the footnotes and correct him. And he thought that was so hilarious. It's like a construct that we then had him commenting in the book to our editor yeah that was that was all my idea and he loved that you know honestly that was the turning point in the writing of the book because i was trying to be very very you know just conscientious and like a good a good journalist and uh would ask questions and you know was just trying to get a feel for what what he wanted from the book and the, you know this happened a couple times he would just be like looking around and i was like all right well how about this, Tommy? How about we make your talk because your thinks he's more famous than you are? And he like looked, he like looked at me. We we're sitting outside at his pool, and he looked at me, and I was like, "Oh, he's he's thinking." I was like, "This isn't going." Well. I was like, "This is bad. You shouldn't have said that." Because he looked like he was getting mad. That he just looked at me, then he picked me up by my chair and threw me in the pool, and then jumped in with me. And like when I came up to the surface, he's like, dude, it's going to be a great summer. I love that idea. <laughs> it's genius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure most of you will have been able to figure out the words that yeah. were bleeped out there in that little clip. But uh, I asked Anthony what the highlight of Tommy Land is. Yeah, the entire story of him meeting Pamela, which again was completely ripped off by the people who made that Hulu show. Um, it that came out great like i got to spend a lot of time with her and i sort of the way i did with eminem and his mom i, I made it more i made that whole chapter i basically let you know I, I gave each of them their say and uh had it read like a script of like how their whole meeting and and going off to cabo and getting married in four days and all that stuff that that's probably that whole section is probably the best part of the book 
Yeah, they got married, I think, four days <laughs> yeah. after they met. Yeah, and it didn't last that long. <laughs> no, it didn't. They got a couple of kids together, though. Oh, have they? They got a couple know. of kids together. Yeah, yeah. And they, they briefly reunited before going their separate ways. <laughs> Again, I was doing my Chris McCarty-esque reading up I was gonna say, that was on very the subject. Chris. Yeah. Well done. Uh, Anthony's had the good fortune to work with some titans of music, including Wyclef Jean, Slash, Mick Fleetwood, Raekwon of the Wu-Tang Clan, mm-hmm. and the band In Excess. So who among them stood out for Anthony? So I would say, I mean, you know, Tommy was special. Uh, Mick Fleetwood, I've never met a human as wonderful as Mick Fleetwood. I always tell people that hanging out with Mick Fleetwood is like hanging out with Gandalf, how I would imagine hanging out with Gandalf to be. (laughs) Um, He's like the classic rock Gandalf. So um, he's just wonderful, sensitive, well-traveled and educated man. He's incredible. I mean, I could go on. Those are the. I guess I, you know, I really get along with drummers. Like those two are my my favorite people. But yeah, they're listen. Everything was special in its own way. Wyclef Jean is the force of nature. Uh, Slash is like the literally, quite possibly, the coolest person in the world. He's just so calm, and I mean that in the sense, you know, in the, like the cool as in he's cool, and also he's just like this very stable, chill. Um, consistent personality it's like nothing wavers that and in that sense to live what he's been through and still be who he is is the ultimate cool to me you know he's just like the way he delivers everything is this like objective like his tone is always like this like all the time and I've seen him in many different situations he's always like that I've never met anyone like that either he's a very unique guy Yeah, Anthony was chosen in 2007 to personally author the book entitled Slash, about the man, of course, who was born Saul Hudson, born in Stoke-on-Trent, in fact, um, Rog, before going on to become the lead guitarist of uh, Guns N' Roses and achieving worldwide success. I want to focus in on the famous Guns N' Roses guitarist now, born in Stoke-on-Trent in England, Saul Hudson, who became Slash became one of the most celebrated guitarists in history. Now, he's famously shy and retiring. He's not a particularly garrulous chap and not one to regularly open up in interviews. So I asked Anthony how he kind of broke that down and actually earned Slash's trust. Um, Well, I got to him, you know, at a time when uh, he had gotten out of rehab. He was finally completely clean. So I think he'd, he'd sort of done that kind of work in terms of you know using drugs and you know the sort of psychological component that comes with it and he was really ready to talk because he had never really been one to chat it up with the press not his style at all but he was really sick and tired of of how he was being represented and sick and tired of people asking about axel and asking about guns and he just wanted to tell a story once and for all to your point though he had talked to i was like the seventh journalist that he'd had different managers over the years and um his manager at the time carl stubner uh was like please just meet this guy because carl and i go we go way back he managed tommy anyway but so he was just like just meet this guy it'll be different and slash told me years later like after the book was over he just turned to me and was like uh, he's like you know why i did the book with you he's like you the only guy we spent eight hours together the first time we met you're the only person who didn't ask about guns and roses or axel rose that's how you got the job and it's like wow okay cool and the reason why i didn't was because his childhood i just started asking him questions about growing up in la and we were sitting in a hotel overlooking the sunset strip 
and he looked and pointed at this house, this A-frame house that's up the hill. And he was like talking about going to parties there. And we just started talking about his childhood. And it was so wildly fascinating. His mom was a costume director who did all the costumes for men who fell to earth and had an affair with David Bowie. And his father was an artist. who used to paint album covers in like the sixties and seventies and did all of the Joni Mitchell, like late, like, um, women, the, all the Joni Mitchell covers that they were, those were six foot paintings that were then photographed. And I was so like riveted and he used to be like a competitive BMX rider. It was like I, guns and roses. Who I was like, this was just the most fascinating conversation. And he had never talked about any of that. So that's why, I mean, the first like 150 page, the book's almost 500 pages. The first 150 is like just this wild LA, you know, music industry childhood. And that's kind of a good rule of thumb for any of these famous celebrities. You've got to try yeah. and find the alternative angle yeah. to, to make them, to, to wake them up, really, because they're so used to the kind of the same old dreary yeah. line of questioning. How many times have you, you watched those um, press junkets for films and it's, they're just, it's just run of the mill. It's just, they're just answering the same stock answers all the time. And then somebody asks a good question that they're into and it, the, the interviewee just lights up. Can be That's anyone. Right. Can be Robert De Niro. Can be, you know, Jennifer Lawrence, whoever. You know, yeah. So brilliant. Anthony, um, unwittingly, he said it wasn't a game plan at all, but mm. uh, he just, uh, he started taking an interest in his early life and Guns N' Roses never came up and, and hence he got the job. Now, Slash is regularly cited near the top of the best guitarists in history lists. And I asked Anthony whether he actually paid any attention to all of those lists and his place in the Pantheon, whether he kind of kept an eye on it or not. And this led on to a question about Anthony's favourite guitarist, which led also to an answer that I think might surprise you. Take a listen. He doesn't want to get involved in any of that. Going back to the cool thing, I mean, the way he describes it, he's like, you know, I just, uh, I've got a toolbox and I've got a couple tools that that, uh, that no one else has. That's kind of what he says. You know, he's got a style and a tone. Um, he, there's no way you'd get Slash like ranking his favorite guitar players. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe he would, but no, he doesn't, not at all. I mean, he is the kind of guy, I mean, if you look at how many different people he's collaborated with across different genres. I mean, when he says that thing about the toolbox, it makes sense, you know, cause you know, immediately that it's slash, um, but he will play with anybody, you know, like if it, if it works or he digs a song and he can drop in on anything. And I think that, I mean, that kind of says it all, you know, and I don't think he's so concerned with like, yeah, I just sees himself as like, you know, he does this thing. He knows his heroes are, are, you know, he's more likely to talk about his heroes, you know, like Joe Perry and that sort of like loves early Aerosmith and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that kind of hard rock sound. Out of interest, who's who's your favorite guitarist? Oh, that's tough. That's really <laughs> tough. Um, I would say I probably Prince. I mean, oh wow, he could do everything. I know no one really. Everyone talks about all the stuff that, you know, all the things that Prince could do. But God, what a guitar player! I mean, good lord, he could do so many things. Yeah, I mean, and Slash. I mean, Slash. I could listen to Slash forever all day. He's so amazing. Yeah. So. To not do the obvious, I'm throwing Prince in there just because that's I don't amazing because he's not known he's, for it, is he? He's not, but go and check some of that stuff out. Listen to uh, there's actually there's a great you can get it on Spotify now the audio, but there's a great YouTube of uh, it's like a super group. I don't know what it was. I think it was maybe the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. 
Um, and it is a super group playing While My Guitar Gently Weeps with Donnie Harrison. It must have been for George Harrison. Donnie Harrison, Tom Petty, um, Jeff Lynn, Mike Campbell. Right. And some other guitar player. And Prince comes out at the end and just everyone's jaw drops because he does that the solo at the end and it's just like it'll just it'll blow you away i suggest you go watch that today it's unbelievable and you see all the other guys just going oh my god believe that's prince playing oh you have to watch it i mean you watch that video oh, when you record so it. good if you see like because he's so his good stagecraft is so good there's one point where he turns his back to the audience and leans off the stage and the security guard like holds him sort of leaning out into the crowd and then pushes him back in and then at the end after that he's amazed everybody even the people on stage he throws his guitar in the air and there is a rumour that that guitar is still orbiting past Pluto as it's oh, really <laughs> it's unreal I mean, it's just what like a performance it's like a football striker just yeah. randomly proving that he's also one of the best goalkeepers <laughs> in the world just, just randomly <laughs> you know it's just unbelievable yeah, talent incredible. that was Prince uh, performing with Tom Petty and given the fact that Anthony has spent an entire career writing about music I thought it was pertinent to ask him about a debate we often have on this yep. show about the state of modern music Rog are we becoming old fuddy-duddies close-minded thinkers who are not open to new sounds and ideas I think so we are there's no doubt about that and I did point that out to Anthony but is there any truth in the allegations that modern music simply isn't as good as the music of yesteryear and he gave a brilliant little explanation here much more detailed and articulate than any of the rants that have ever been appearing on this show. Take a listen. I will say um, music has changed drastically since the digitization and the sort of singles-based, uh, I guess, I don't know, like it's a singles-based industry now. You know, albums are less valued. People want playlists. That's how they make money on Spotify and all that stuff. Um so when you're looking for just a single to propel you to wherever you're trying to go, it's a different mindset than writing an album that tells a story or tells a pure, captures a period of time in a beautiful way. So that is one thing. You know, record companies 
are desperate for singles too because there's basically you know the record company paradigm is like five percent of the artists pay for 90 percent of the bills um that's kind of what we're living in so there's very little artist development and we're not really in a time with all the like the hyper focus of social media and access there's very little time for artists to develop you know um Combine that with the technology that lets people, everyone think they're a mega producer because they have a laptop and a bunch of plugins, you know, and the, and people wanting to capture like the vibe of something and whatever they might be thinking and everyone thinking they're great because they, they're used to having a social media camera on them all the time. It just is going to be like with those, if those are your ingredients, the stew is not going to be as rich is, is my general theory. Yeah. So, I think that, you know, like you will always love the music that hit you at times in your life that are significant. Those don't necessarily always have to be like your teenage years. You know, we all have the angst of thinking that the world doesn't understand me, you know, just like everyone else, right? <laughs> um, just like everyone else feels. So those bands will always be dear to everyone's heart. And there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. So there's two things going on, I guess. There's the tendency of all of us to sort of stick with what we grew yep. up with and, and the music that we enjoyed listening to in our in our youth. Yep. And then there's there's what's been going on with the music industry at large. Yeah. As he just so so well explained there. And and there's more to it because he kind of goes into more detail about how the digitization of music has robbed certain celebrated hotspots like Brooklyn, for example, of their kind of musical heartbeat. Ah. There's less new music that's thrilling. And I think it's a combination of what I just said and also this sort of like song factory mentality that at least in like the pop anything that's aiming for wide commercial success has been sort of um sort of sucked into the song factory thing there's actually mm. a great book by john seabrook called i think it's inside the song factory that really traces the the sort of development of these of like the mega producer like represented by somebody like dr luke you know who writes like you look and it's different artists but it's the same guy who did all these number ones that we hear in a certain year and that's like the sound of the year that's very con that's what we're living in now yeah um and that really started actually started with like there you know it all comes um it all comes from like Sweden and, and ABBA and like they're generally all like Swedish music makers like Dennis Pop was the first one who did it with like Ace of Bass you know and like that kind of stuff has bled over into um, everything that's commercially successful so if that's kind of where we're working from and that and the singles you know the fervor for singles is what is what's driving things you're getting things that all sound the same we're also in in you know the, the people consuming it a lot of kids and stuff are not used to hearing anything that's not sung to a backing track and don't know what it's like to see a band that's really playing live and like the beauty of like a, a weird mistake and like what how a band could correct that and how that you know a song isn't doesn't sound like the album wow you know that might blow their mind or, or they might hate it so it's a very different time yeah from very different from the 90s that's for sure so that in and of itself is tough i think that the ability to just put a song up on soundcloud or whatever it discourages development and and analysis you know the days of like a band I mean, there will always be bands in a garage somewhere, <laughs> you know, doing their thing and practicing and stuff like that. But the majority, I think, probably like expose themselves too soon. And if it doesn't work, try something else or quit. You know, 
I feel like because of that, we're not going to have like a scene develop like Seattle in the nineties right. or Brooklyn in well, the two thousands. Like they're like, I was here, you know, I'm in, a new, in New York and Brooklyn and like, I was here for like the strokes, the AAS LCD sound system, Yaysayer, like all these amazing bands. And that was the end of that era for me. That was like the two thousands to like 2015, you know, and Brooklyn is, you know, more popular than ever. And there is nothing, there's no scene like that anymore even here and that that's a little sad yeah it is isn't it it really is sad yeah guys it's really interesting to hear somebody who's kind of written about music for so long talk about in a measured way yeah yeah absolutely Uh, but but it's um yeah it's it's something that's been lost i think Mm -hmm. in the culture yeah absolutely and Uh, i wonder if it'll ever come back because there will still be music will still will still mean so much to people it's not like music will cease to mean things it's just that the way that technology has kind of changed the scene and the landscape has just meant that it's it's kind of expressed in different ways. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those those sort of musical scenes that he was talking about, which kind of produce such bands as The Strokes, mm-hmm. you know, for those, yeah. for, the, for those to evaporate and disappear is, um, is quite a sort of sobering thought, really. I wonder if the next evolution will be performance spaces, metaverse style, virtual reality things where young artists, new artists can go and jam with each other and from there you'll get bands. And oh, that's you're making where my head hurt now, Rog. Oh, my word. It's going to happen, Rob. They're going to leave us oh, in the dust. Oh, my goodness me. Yeah, that's quite the thought. Massive thanks once again to the very articulate, the very uh, well-spoken Anthony Bozer for sparing his time. Anthony, incidentally, he brought out a new book last year, From Staircase to Stage, The Story of Ray and the Wu-Tang Clan. So if you love your hip-hop, that's definitely one to check out. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 